Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. We are currently preaching a series from the book of Genesis called Back Where I Began, the search for meaning in the book of Genesis. It has been said that we can't know what we are supposed to do unless we know what story we are a part of. In the book of Genesis, God tells us in no uncertain terms what story we are a part of. We are a part of his story, a story that he has been writing since the beginning for our good and his glory. We're so glad you've joined us for this podcast, and if you are able, we'd like to invite you to join us in person for worship. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. So if you're new to Midtown, uh, welcome. We love having you here. And uh, there's something that is true about us as a community, is that we believe that when we gather together... um, and we worship and we open up the word, the Lord is doing something in this room. In fact, he's doing something in you. And it's so strange because the sound system can distract you and me being up here can make you feel like that what's happening in this room is happening on this stage. When in reality, what we believe is what's happening in this room is happening right there in you. Um, And so when we study scripture, we believe the Lord wants to speak to us. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna just pause for a second And I'm going to ask you to silently pray for the person that you just met, even though you don't remember their name. They just gave it to you. Jesus knows who they are, okay? And we're going to lift each other up to pray that God would help us transcend Midtown and transcend like this chapel with a very white Jesus in the back uh, and the stained glass window. We're going to transcend all of this, and we are going to ask the Lord to come and meet us and do something supernatural. You with me? If you don't believe in prayer, that's okay. Uh, maybe just use this time to be still and be quiet and, and even say to God, if you're real, come and find me. Okay. That's a scary prayer, by the way. All right, let's pray. Lord, would you hear the prayers of your saints for those sitting around them, uh, that you'd let us practice love right now and pray for that person we just met. In Christ's name. Amen. So today's sermon, I got to tell you, I I was thinking about this after the first service, and the only thing that could come to mind is today's sermon is like the food truck in the Home Depot parking lot. I got to say, I've been to some very elaborate Mexican restaurants in my life. I mean, I literally, I've been to the one in Epcot. That is epic. Have anybody been to that one? That's unbelievable. You walk in and you go, I don't care what the food tastes like. Like, I'm already satisfied. This is spectacular. That's not what today's sermon is. My favorite Mexican food in this entire city is the food truck at Home Depot. Has anybody eaten there? Am I lying? That is so great. The one nearest to us in our hearts, right up here by Walmart, just a mile away. It's my favorite. It may not be your favorite, but there's nothing spectacular The people running it, I'm not even sure they can speak English, much less like the menu. I just point. And it's so good. And it ruins the smell of your truck for like a week. So don't eat it in your car, all right? But that's kind of today's sermon is that there's not a lot of, I don't have a lot of great stories. I'm just going to take you to truth. And we're going to trust that Jesus is going to do something with it, okay? So come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Because We're studying Genesis, and I know like this would be the perfect place for me to 
get into all the controversies around Genesis and creation and evolution and six days or six million years or all that kind of stuff. And the reason I love those controversies is because controversies always keep me from dealing with me. Like, I'm not saying you shouldn't explore those. Go for it. Like, knock yourself out. The internet loves you, you know? But I'm saying that this story that's given to us, God is giving this story for one purpose, to reveal something about himself and to reveal something about us. If I let the controversies, like, if they distract me, then I can gaslight the entire scriptures and never have to deal with me in this story. Because let me tell you what today's passage is about. That God is a garden maker. One, we are garden haters. Two, Jesus saves us from ourselves. That's the whole sermon right there. So if you know what I'm talking about, you may exit. Come back when the songs are playing. But Elisa's going to come and read for us from Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start and... um, You know, if you ever want to do some deep dive into what is this all about, the first chapter tells the creation story. And guess what? The second chapter tells it again. It's this poetry, some believe, was a song that was sung by the Israelites long before Moses put it down on paper. Um, But listen, it's given us different perspectives of the creation story. And let's see what God has for us today. Chapter 2, verse 8. Yes, here's the word of the Lord. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Uh, So Lord, meet us, um, because if we have to find you, we can't come and find us. Amen. So uh, the first point in this passage is so obvious, sometimes we can miss it. And let me illustrate it by going to the verse before Elisa read, and that's verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. From the very beginning of the creation story, we see that God is so intently intimate with man that man is brought to life by God literally breathing into his nostrils. Now, so imagine this. The first thing that Adam experiences as a living human being, the very first thing that he sees as he's coming to life, 
with God breathing into his nostrils, which means that God was this close. The first thing he sees is the intimacy of God that is caught up in the wonder of his own creation. And if you don't understand how intimate that is, let's do a little experiment. So I'm going to ask you to (laughs) breathe into the nostrils of the person next to you, especially if it's somebody you don't know, and see if that's not invading their space. God was invading Adam's space. And why? He could have done it a thousand different ways, you know? Then we wouldn't have some great worship songs, you know? Breath of God. Anyway, but he's breathing into Adam to display something that's very profound and displayed again when we come to the garden. It says in verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. Everything he planted, everything that he did was intentional. In fact, it says the Lord God planted a garden. You know that everywhere else in Genesis 1 up to this point, it says the Lord created. But this is a picture almost as if God, with his own hands now, came into the garden and began to plant specific trees and bushes and streams like he's crafting this out of the landscape himself it's almost as if have you ever been in love and you want to do something very special for the person that you're in love with and so what you're thinking is what can I do that they would love so if you're going to cook them a meal you're thinking like what what do they love I'm going to make a meal of all the things that they love you know, and all the special things to where, like when I bring out, you know, the salad, it's the salad they love. Oh, you remembered, you thought about me. And then when you bring out the entree, you're like, that's my favorite. I can't believe that you brought squash or whatever, you know. And then the dessert, yes, dessert, chocolate fountain. I love it. You know, that you're doing this because you are so in love that it is your delight to delight in the things that they delight in. Are you with me? What is God doing? God God is crafting a garden and calling it Eden. Do you know what Eden means? Translated, Eden means delight. Some even translate it as pleasure. That God is creating a garden. That everything about this garden is God delighting in what Adam is going to delight in. That God is pleasuring in everything that's going to bring pleasure to Adam. Everything. He says, if you go through there, you see things they see, see, things they will taste, things they will smell, even things that they touch. And every one of those categories, God has carefully crafted for the pleasure of Adam. For the delight of Adam. And God delighted in giving to Adam and Eve what he knew they would delight in. See how intimate this is? I mean, think about it just for a minute. When we go to the beach, one of the things that we do, it's usually around 6 o'clock, we get our beach chairs and we hike down to the beach and we sit with a bunch of other people that are not facing the ocean. We're kind of, we're facing the direction of the sunset. And we're all there to enjoy the sunset over the ocean. Why? Because we all have come to behold the wonder and the beauty and the majesty 
of the sun setting over the ocean. It's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. It's incredible. And God made us that way. We love to see stuff that blows us away. And in the garden, God was, was giving them everything that their eyes could behold. He also gave them everything they could taste. Like, think about the power of taste. I love food. <laughs> I do. A taco truck. Come on. I've already referenced Home Depot. But I'll tell you what I loved last night. Okay? Let me just talk about it for a minute because what I had last night was crunchy. It was savory. It was a bit salty. And then it was profoundly sweet. What it was, was I told Renee last night, she goes, what do you want for dinner? I said, I know exactly what I want for dinner. I'll be back in 20 minutes. And I went and got a double bacon cheeseburger from Hugh Babies. <laughs> do y'all know what Hugh Babies is? Is there anybody here that does not know Hugh Babies? We're going to stop the service right now because you need to go. <laughs> and <laughs> see you, Chris. <clears throat> And a giant chocolate milkshake. Have you ever had the two together? This was in the Garden of Eden. Because <laughs> there is nothing but delight and pleasure. In that. Now, you don't feel so great an hour later. I'm trusting in the new heavens we'll be able to eat like that without any consequence, all right? I love seeing. I love tasting. I love the gift of smell. Like, it's coming every spring when, when people in my neighborhood start to mow their grass, the smell of fresh mowed grass always takes me back to that first year I played Little League Baseball. And just the wonder, this was before my soul was crushed by my lack of skill. Uh, and you go running out on the field and the grass has just been cut and you smell it and you're caught up in the wonder of possibilities that this is a new year, this will be the year that I'll knock it over the fence. I love that. And then touch. I'm just trying to give you a taste. This is how God created Adam to experience what he's giving them. And touch is, of course, you know, touch to tell if something's hard or soft or whether it's hot or cold. But there's, there's a way that scientists are beginning to understand that our bodies have been shaped and formed that touch. We have, we have more than just the capacity to touch and feel a surface. Some researchers put it this way that there is an emotional touch system that God has built inside of us. It's mediated by a special sensor called the C-tactile fiber, and it conveys information much more slowly. It's vague in terms of where the touch is happening, but it sends information to parts of our brains called the posterior insula that is crucial for social bonding. This includes things like hug from a friend or when you were little and your mother would touch you with compassion or even our sexuality. That we've been wired in such a way that it's not just physical, but someplace in my brain actually is beginning to get triggered and drawn to and experiences pleasure that's associated with emotion by certain touches. And in all these ways, God created with delight and with pleasure for the delight and pleasure of Adam, the garden. It's amazing. When you stop and you step back and you go, oh, this was unlike anything we could have ever imagined and greater than anything that we could ever imagine. And here's the crazy thing. As great as this garden is in this story, 
as amazing as this place called pleasure and delight was for Adam, that's not the main part of this story. Because we weren't made for the garden. The garden was made for us. In fact, the garden is an adornment to us. The marvel in this story is God's creation of mankind. I hope that you've tasted a little bit of the spectacularness of this beginning story. Because in verse 16, it says, And the Lord commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In this garden, this garden of delight, this garden of pleasure, by a God who longs for intimacy with his creation, there's a big fat no. You can't do that. Right here in the middle of beauty, there is a boundary. There is a boundary that says that this beauty is now framed in, and here's what we know. All you got to do is give Adam one, don't cross this line, and what is Adam going to do? Cross the line. The one area that he said you can't do this is the one area that Adam did. What is God up to? Come on, get the tree out of the garden. (laughs) Don't even give him a chance to go to it. But God is telling us something that we know is true. That every love, healthy love, every healthy love has a boundary. Right there at the beginning of the Bible. You want to get married and you want to have a healthy marriage? You can't date anymore, right? We all agree to that or do I need to go back and preach on that? That's a boundary. When you stand up here and you take vows till death do its part, it's not till death do we part and if our dating relationships don't really work out. It's like, no, you are the one and I am forsaking all others to give myself to you. That's love with a boundary. Like if you have children, some of you have children here. God bless you. We should just stop and let you nap. But if you have children here, guess what? If you want to have a healthy, loving relationship with your children, you cannot live like you're single. That's a boundary. That's a boundary. You're sacrificing your freedom, your special time, your extra time. You're going out whenever you want the flexibility of your schedule, you're sacrificing all of that to love these little creatures in your home called children. Like you can't turn to your husband and go, let's just put out a bowl of water and let's just leave some food out on the floor and let's just go to Bonnaroo for three days, just three days. They'll be fine, I swear. That's not good love. You can do that, but that's not love. But if you want to love them well, they're boundaries, right? You know, we won't have time this morning to talk about healthy boundaries in marriage, even in our relationship with each other, uh, how just because you're married to another person doesn't give them the right to abuse you, and it doesn't give them the right to mistreat you. It doesn't give them the right to be unhealthy in the emotional processing of their own heart. It doesn't give them the right to blame you for how they feel or make you responsible for their emotions. Those are not, that's not healthy. There should be boundaries and If you want to know more, you can take the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality class to learn what healthy boundaries are in marriage. But we all know, if you work for Coke, you don't moonlight with Pepsi, right? I have a friend who works for Nike, 
and he manages the college accounts and they had sent him a new employee that they were going to train and he was to meet him at the airport and they were going to Michigan State to kind of figure out what they need this year and everything. And the new guy shows up at the gate and he looks down and he's wearing Reeboks. (laughs) And he goes, hey, bro, let me tell you something. We're about to take off and those shoes are not getting on the plane. (laughs) That is the boundary. He said, you can go home and go find another job or you can throw those in the trash and you're going with me barefoot. The line is drawn and we all get it. We're like, you can't go in and negotiate a contract with, for Nike and you're not even wearing their product. Come on. We all know that. Here's the problem. I hate boundaries. I hate them. I hate limits. See, what was happening here in the garden was God said, here is my will and with my will comes delight and pleasure. And Adam is going, yeah, but here's my will. What was going on in the garden was God says, I am in control. Yield to my control. And Adam was basically saying, no. I'll take control into my own hands. What Adam was saying was, God, it's not that I don't trust you. It's just that I trust me more. It's not that you're not trustworthy. It's just I think I'm more trustworthy. In fact, I believe that it's my superpower as your pastor. Tell me I can't do something and I want to do it. Tell me it's out of bounds and I'll be drawn to it. Tell me it's not allowed and I will fight to figure out some way to make it allowed. I hate boundaries. Put me in a car and the speed limit is 65. I will figure out a way to do 75 and justify it. Justify it. I will. I, if the speed limit's 70, How fast do we really go? Come on, what's the real speed limit? 80, you're right. And then when we get pulled over and get a ticket for 80, we feel, how can this be? This is injustice. Because we are so good at justifying. Even in religion, we do this. Do you know last week, Dave Burden, I am a fortunate man to have that man in my life. I love him. He is my wisdom Yoda. If you were here last week, he was just spitting wisdom like a rapper or something. It was unbelievable. I was writing down everything he said. Uh, and you know, when he talked, he talked about the Sabbath and he talked about things like we don't rest because we're not at rest. We're actually restless. And here's the funny thing about the Sabbath, because he talked about why God created it, how God celebrated the Sabbath in his own life and how we should, we can, should consider the Sabbath in our own life. Let me tell you about the Sabbath. It's a commandment. <clears throat> it's a commandment. Like if I say to you, do not kill, you're like, okay, I got that. I got that. That's crossing the line. I get it. Or if I said, don't steal, you're like, ah, okay, I got to give that guy I'm sitting next to his phone back. All right, I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to steal. Or if I say, don't commit adultery, we are, n- we are not confused about what adultery is. And like, we know, okay, that's crossing the line. Nobody commits adultery and goes, I don't know. I just kind of stumbled into it. No, you knew there's a line you crossed. But when it comes to the Sabbath, we're like, eh, you know, I mean, what is rest really? I mean, seriously, I love my work. And when I work, it's like rest. It's like, we are so, we are so gifted at justifying when God makes something very clear 
And to where he's like, you are so against rest and you are so against the Sabbath. I have to make it a commandment just to get your attention to slow down. And even then we go, God, I see your will, but I got a will. And it comes to a matter of trust. I think I trust me just a little bit more. Paul explained this in Romans chapter 7. He said, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known that coveting really was... Let me read that again. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me... Now, what he's saying is the, the law came and said, do not covet. Well, before I heard that, I'm like, I've never even really considered covenant, coveting. But now that you said it, what awoke within me was, listen, every kind of coveting. Not just one kind. Paul said, man, I am an expert at coveting. I have so many different flavors of coveting that it woke up every form of me to rebel against the will of God. That was in Paul. See, I want to Eden, but I want to Eden where I'm in control. I want to Eden where I see, set the rules. I want pleasure and delight, but I want it on my terms. I do. I want control. I need control. I got to have control, and I will kill to get control. This is Jennifer Duke Lee. She's written on this topic quite a bit, and she said, there is a deep belief that I am safer and more secure if I'm in charge. Carla Manley, she wrote about this as well, and she takes us a little deeper down the rabbit hole, which I'm not sure we want to go. Remember, this is a taco truck, all right? I'm just giving it to you. You decide if you want to eat it or not. But it's good. She says, I found that a deep-seated need for control generally stems from a place of a deep inner fear of the unknown. No matter how strong, smart, or talented you are, the need to always be in control is a destructive fear that can take hold of your inner world. She goes on to say, even when we dot every I and cross every T, we too often wake up thinking, if only I could control my diet, control my work, control my kids, control my dog, control my body, my age, my thoughts, my feelings, my living space, my relationships, my life, grocery prices, gas prices, climate change, politics, natural disasters. If I could control all that, life would be so much easier. And then I would feel so much better. lie there's no such thing as control and we all know that in the sanity of being surrounded by sane people you're like uh, uh, uh. but in reality we're spending our whole lives trying to create an eden which we're in control and we use everything to get control think about it we we use power some of you are like the power brokers in your family and you use anger to become the power broker in your family. You're the thermostat that everybody tests whether or not we're getting along or not. And you use your anger to control how everybody behaves. Are you going to get here on time? You better get here on time. Are you going to do that? You better do that. Like you, That power gives you a sense of control. Some of you use money 
You, you love using your money to control your world. You know what you're going to live in. You know where you're going to go. You know that you have enough to get you through the week. You know you have a car. Like You use your money to have this sense of your own little Eden, delight and pleasure. Some of you use autonomy. I mean, autonomy is, man, again, if we had more time, think about autonomy. I don't need anybody. Think about the power of that control. I don't need anybody. I got myself. And I have learned to live on an island of me. I don't feel anything. I don't care about anything. And no one cares about I'm good. In my world, there are people who use theology as their control mechanism. There's right theology and there's wrong theology. There's good people and there's bad people. But here in Nashville, knowledge is a power of control. I mean, we have how many universities we got here? Beauty is, we even talk about beautiful people. They appear to have control. And I I love to compare my inside to their outside because I never win in that equation, but I still love to do it. Or fame. Here's one that may shock you, that shame is a way of control. See, when I'm ashamed about what I've done, or what has been done to me, and I feel responsible for what I've done or what has been done to me. In other words, I'm in control of the shame that I feel right now because I'm at the center of all of this storyline, then that allows me to have control about my unforeseen future because if I had the power to control the past, I certainly believe that I have the power to control the future. Huh. Instead of building a new Eden, we're actually building hell. Sharon Miller, she wrote a book called The Cost of Control. If you have a control problem, I recommend you don't read it. Uh, She goes, it all begins with the simple fact that control creates anxiety. That's right. It creates anxiety. Although we seek control as a solution to our anxiety, control also produces anxiety. It's counterintuitive to the surface, but the more we try to control something uncontrollable, the more out of control we feel. Then to quell our anxiety, we seek to control even more. You see the cycle? Adam said to God, I'm going to choose me over you. And that tumbling cascade of destruction has landed with us today to where Paul goes, what a wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this insanity. You know, I don't really have any conclusion but to tell you it's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have some magic formula to try to show you how he's the answer other than to say to you that, that Jesus Jesus, we call him the second Adam. What the first Adam could not do, what the first Adam did not do, the second Adam did. The second Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane said to God, your will, not my will, be done. Even to the point of his own death, he wouldn't choose his own will. Even in his own death, he would not take control from the hands of the Father, but he surrendered himself completely into the hands of the Father, even to death on a cross. And scripture says that when he went to that cross, he didn't go there to pay the penalty for his sins because he had none. 
He went there as an act of love to bring us back to the garden of delight and pleasure. He went there to rescue us from our own insanity of thinking that we can control this world and control ourselves. He rescued us from our own broken thinking that always wants what God doesn't want for us. And then he rose again. And here's what he said when he rose again. I rise so that you too may rise to newness of life. So let me take you. In that story that Elisa read, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But did you pick up that there was another tree? There was a tree of life. In fact, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, we got to get them out of here. Why? Lest they eat of the tree of life. He said, we got to get them out. And he put an angel with a sword, flaming sword in front of that tree and said, you shall not pass. Just like Gandalf, you know, it, no, sorry. <laughs> Only a few of you got that geeking out. Lord of the Rings. Uh, and he, what is so special about this tree of life? In fact, here's what's remarkable. All right. The tree of life is mentioned here, Genesis chapter two. You know, when we get it again, we got to go to the very last book, the very last chapter, like that's how much Bibles between the two mentions of the tree of life. And let's read what it says in Revelations because it's going to tell us something that's remarkable about the life that Jesus wants to give you. That he wants to rescue you from yourself and actually rebirth you into your truest self. This is, this is Revelations chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the waters of life. This is the, the new city of heaven, the new garden of Eden that now has grown into a city. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Bearing 12 crops of fruit. Yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What is that? What is that? Then in the Garden of Eden, we got one tree. In the new kingdom, in the new Eden, in the new Jerusalem, it's on both sides of the river, which means it's not just one tree anymore. Now it's a grove of trees, and they're bearing all kinds of fruit, like limitless fruit, in season, out of season. They're always producing fruit, and it's such a powerful tree that even their leaves are healing the nation. What is going on? Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will be grafted into the kingdom of God as if you were a tree of life. Is it possible that the new heavens, that now that we've been grafted into the beautiful tree, he is the vine, we are the branches. We have been grafted in, the true tree of life is Jesus. And now we join him because we have been made holy. And that we will shine like stars in the universe as we become the delight and pleasure of the Garden of Eden. So what do we do? Isaiah chapter 30, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. 
And quietness and trust is your strength. In other words, no frills, taco truck. Jesus says, repent. Repent and rest that God has it and he's in control. Come to him this morning and give to him all those places, all those fearful places that you've tried to control and manage and create your own Garden of Eden. And he says, come to me. Come to me because I know you're weary. I know you're burdened. And I know this life of trying to control everything has worn you out. Come to me and I will give you life. That's the invitation this morning. That the Jesus who knew no sin became your sin so that you can become the righteousness of God and one day join the groves of righteousness that will shine like stars in the universe. That's what your Jesus is doing for you. And he asked you to come and taste that today. Put down your burden. Put down your rebellion. Put down your attitude to God. Hey, I know you got your will, but I got my will and I choose my will. There's nobody I trust on this planet more than I trust myself. The Lord says, I know, and it's killing you. Come to me. Put it down. Come to me. Trust me. Come to me, and I will give you life. How does that work? I don't know. I, I don't know. Have you ever been broken and somebody that loves you more than their own life just holds you? And how that heals you? Maybe that's where the mystery is. So we're going to go into a time, we're going to go into a time of repentance right now. We've made room in our service now for you to lay down all the ways that you have rebelled against your father and come into his delight and come into his pleasure. So I want to invite you as we come into this time of prayer, um, this time of confession, that um, you would let the Lord lead you. So.